Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about Thucydides, Isocrates, and the power of rhetoric. Uh, And we're talking about rhetoric from within Greek political thought because the Greeks, I think, have especially interesting ideas about rhetoric uh, because of how seriously they take epistemology and, and truth and knowledge and because of the connections they make between rhetoric and knowledge and and whether someone is telling the truth, whether someone is helping people in their city, in their community to understand the truth, all of these things are very important to the Greeks. And so there's a seriousness with which they take the topic that I think is especially compelling. And we're starting with Isocrates, Isocrates who ran a school of rhetoric a school of rhetoric where he charged very high fees, uh, even by the standards of the period, uh, and who writes a variety of different speeches, many of which conflict with each other because Isocrates was often more attracted to a good turn of phrase than he was to any particular substantive position. Uh, This is highlighted in part by Isocrates spending a lot of time making beautiful speeches for why Greece should unify and invade Persia and colonize Asia Minor so that the Greeks could have more living space, uh, more land for people in Greece to live on, and that would reduce social pressure to uh, you know, over, over the price of land and over access to land. Uh, then, of course, when Philip II of Macedon does invade Greece and unify it, Isocrates flips out and starves himself to death. Uh, so this is a guy who, whose positions could change relatively quickly. And he's someone who gives speeches uh, against sophistry, despite the fact that he charges high fees. And for the critics of sophistry in Athens, charging money to people to attend your school, that is one of the defining features that makes a sophist. So when Isocrates argues against the sophists, to the mind of the philosophers, he's arguing against himself. But for Isocrates, by saying, I'm not a sophist, I condemn the sophists, that's how much I'm not a sophist. He's able to deflect some of the criticism that he otherwise receives for charging these exorbitantly high fees. Isocrates puts himself on trial for teaching rhetoric in one of his his works and kind of lets himself off the hook on the grounds that If a wise person, a philosopher, someone who knows the truth, learns rhetoric, by learning rhetoric, they will be able to share the truth, to share what they've learned, their knowledge, with other people in the city and thereby induce the city to behave in a way which accords more with truth or knowledge. So he pitches rhetoric as a means by which the philosopher, the contemplator, can translate what they've been thinking about into some kind of effective uh, political praxis. Uh, Thucydides is a 
a very pragmatic kind of theorist. Thucydides, of course, is famous for writing the history of the Peloponnesian War uh, and for kind of being the founder of the international relations tradition of, of realism. Uh, and Thucydides, his, insofar as he intersects with the theme of today's episode, rhetoric, Thucydides takes great interest in Pericles, the Athenian leader, uh, and often strategos or general. And Thucydides is very, very into Pericles because Thucydides argues that most orators in Athens get led around by the crowd and therefore don't really lead the city. The city leads them. But Pericles, because of his exceptional talent, exceptional rhetorical talent, was able to get the city to do what he wanted to do instead of constantly moving to where the city was. And for Thucydides, that's a key element of leadership, is the ability to change public opinion instead of being dragged around by it. And because Pericles was able to do that, even though some of Pericles' decisions may have been mistakes, indeed, Pericles eventually uh, dies in a plague after walling up everybody in Attica into inside of Athens to protect them from the Spartan army, a plague then spreads through Athens and kills something like a quarter of the Athenian population, including Pericles himself. Uh, and many members of Pericles' family. Despite some of these possible mistakes, because Pericles was able to get the city to do what he wanted, he was able to lead it. And the people who follow Pericles are not so able to do this in Thucydides' view. The people who came before and after Pericles were more easily led around. So those are kind of our, our two opening thinkers. Uh, now, we're not just going to limit ourselves to Isocrates and Thucydides on this episode. We're also going to talk about a Platonic dialogue that we didn't spend a lot of time on in our original episode at the beginning of, of uh, the series on Plato, and that's the Gorgias. And in the Gorgias, Plato talks quite a bit about rhetoric. Uh, he argues that rhetoric is not a craft, that it doesn't aim at any good and therefore it doesn't merit the name of, of being a craft. In the Phaedrus, he modifies this position a little bit and says that it can potentially be a craft in the hands of someone who is motivated by a love of knowledge or truth. But in the Gorgas, he says, no, no, it can't really be a craft because it, it, its aim, its final aim or telos, is not the truth. And he spends some time in that dialogue explicitly criticizing Pericles, arguing that because the leaders who followed Pericles were worse people than Pericles and worse leaders than Pericles, that implies that Pericles made the city of Athens worse, made the people in Athens worse, and in this way contributed to the general stagnation and decline of Athens, and therefore isn't worthy of the kind of praise which he's accorded by Thucydides. Um, and a lot of this, and we're going to talk about some of these big general themes here. A lot of this has to do with the way that you think uh, rhetoric interacts with knowledge. If you think that knowledge is um, easily transmitted by rhetoric, if it's easy for someone to persuade someone of the truth using rhetoric, uh, then you're not going to have nearly the same level of problems with rhetoric that Plato has. Plato thinks that the truth is not advantaged in the field of rhetoric, that 
very often there are untruths that are going to be more persuasive to larger numbers of people than the truth itself. And a lot of that comes from Plato's belief that different kinds of people have different levels of interest in the truth. There are, for Plato, some people who love wisdom, some people who love status, some people who love to feel good. And people who love status or love to feel good are not necessarily going to be drawn toward the truth when the truth is introduced in a rhetorical debate. And furthermore, in, in the Gorgas, Plato identifies a lot of, uh, of people who instead think that rhetoric itself is the source of truth, that what you can get people to agree on or what you can persuade people of, that that in some sense becomes the truth or identifies the truth. Now, there's a possible discrepancy there in terms of, is this a kind of postmodern argument that the truth is constructed by people through rhetoric, through some kind of intersubjective discourse, which is very often what in contemporary terms is being argued? Or is it the case that the truth is revealed, that the truth objectively is revealed by this rhetorical deliberation? So there are two possible readings there, and they may seem similar, but they're different. Uh, and I want to emphasize that. A reading where the truth is purely constructed through the debate and it's subjective and it could be whatever it is that they agree on, or that the truth is revealed through the debate and that rhetoric is a means of revealing what the truth actually is. Are the crowds actually wise or are the crowds constructing narratives that we call the truth? And what we call the truth is just a narrative constructed by crowds. Uh, a more contemporary postmodern reading of all of this would tend to favor that, that idea that the truth is constructed by crowds. I, I think probably in this context, given what else is going on in the ancient world and what kinds of ideas are popular or in the ancient world, it's more likely that it's a wisdom of crowds argument. The idea being that the crowd actually is more able to get at the truth through this rhetorical debate than the philosophers are through contemplative exercise. Uh, so this is, these are some of the leading threads coming out of this and coming into this. Uh, Edmund as you were reading all of this stuff, what, what stood out to you? I think with Isocrates, what stood out is, as you say, the kind of contrasts between um, not just what he said and what he did, but also between stuff that he says. Isocrates both says that, um, that the life of a rhetorician is... Uh, a better life than the life of the people who he accuses uh, he accuses of being sophists um at one point um claiming that uh, that those people who are trying to uh, uh, spread ideas uh, of Virtue and wisdom, he says, for, for people who exhort people to a virtue and to a wisdom unrecognised by others and debated over by themselves, whereas I exhort them to one acknowledged by everyone. So he is suggesting that um, his opponents are interested in idiosyncratic conceptions of the good, whereas he is trying to 
appeal to the whole polity, and in doing so, he is not like the sophists, and he is somehow using rhetoric to appeal to everyone. But in saying this, it kind of contrasts with his frequent appeals to, as you say, rhetoric as a means to the truth, rhetoric as a means to spreading uh, philosophic abstractions. And I think there's a contrast there between, on the one hand, Isocrates wants to say that uh, rhetoric is simply better than the uh, simple, uh, uh, narrow-minded, abstract philosophy. But he also wants to say that um, ideas of justice and virtue are what rhetoric is all about. And it doesn't seem that he can quite have it both ways. Both criticise the people obsessing over, um, as Socrates is in the gorgeous, um, virtue and justice as alternatives and superior to rhetoric, but also saying that um, that rhetoric is something that is just, that is virtuous. And there does seem to be a tension. And I think that's partly because... Uh, his notion of um, philosophy, um, logos, he defines as speech, and through reducing philosophy to speech, um, it instead of giving equal priority to these two spheres, he's putting rhetoric um, above philosophic or abstract um, contemplation. And he, he's still trying to make sure they coincide. He's both trying to say that rhetoric beats abstract philosophy and that rhetoric is what philosophy is all about. It's about communication and about speech. And th- I think that seems to be a tension there, the, the, the criticism of abstract conceptions of virtue and the emphasis on rhetoric as virtuous seems to be something that I- I- Socrates tries to have both ways. but. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure if he can have both ways. Yeah, those are, are two different arguments, right? One argument which says you're actually going to find the truth through rhetoric and that rhetoric is the actual source of truth, not philosophy. And another which says, hey, if you think you have the truth, learn to use rhetoric and then you'll be able to share the truth with others. Uh, one of those arguments is a more conciliatory kind of argument that you make for someone who is already inclined toward philosophy. And the other is an argument that you might make for a broader audience with more ordinary people who aren't into philosophy or perhaps have no hope of, of really getting into philosophy. And I think that, that that second argument that's made to someone who might have some philosophical inclinations, that argument is the kind of argument that Isocrates might make to someone who is considering his school, considering spending some more time at the academy, thinking about a lot of different possible educational options in Athens, uh, and Isocrates kind of wants to win them over. Mm. Yeah, and get them to pay those really, really high exorbitant tuition fees. Mm. But yeah, there is a sharp difference there. And then there's also, if you notice, a little bit of an egalitarianism in that first position that Isocrates gives, that first position being the one where um, rhetoric is, is the means by which we reveal the truth because the crowd is wiser than the individual philosopher. 
That suggests that what is appealing to everyone is more likely to be true than what's appealing to a small group of educated people. Yes, yes. And Plato, of course, has completely the opposite view. Plato thinks that most people are not capable of apprehending the truth, and certainly not very much of it, even those who are capable are often quite limited in terms of the amount of truth that they can apprehend. And therefore, for Plato, the truth is always going to be appealing only to a minority. It's never going to be the argument that will carry the day with a crowd. And those are fundamental fundamentally different premises from which to start. If you think that what is persuasive to everyone is more likely to be true versus what's persuasive only to the people with the best education and the best critical thinking ability. Mm. And yeah. that gets it very much this, this notion of, of knowledge and, and whether you need a lot of expertise mm. to participate in knowledge generation. Yeah, yeah. That there's this majoritarian element to Isocrates, which yeah, really isn't there in Plato. And yeah. it kind of yeah, as you suggest, kind of derives from Isocrates's um emphasis on reputation a lot. He 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 talks a lot about how you can tell that um Isocrates saying about himself that uh, he is, you know, when he's on this mock trial that he's setting up for himself, you can tell that he is um, not corrupting the youth of Athens, contrary to the allegations against him. Interestingly, the language of corrupting the youth of Athens being the same that was leveled against um, Socrates in 399 uh, BCE. Uh, the difference being that with Socrates, that was an actual trial which led to his death, whereas Isocrates, this was a uh, made-up trial. But nonetheless, I, Isocrates is trying to say that you, in this mock trial that he is, uh, not what his accusers tell, um, say that he is, because he is reputable, because you will see that people won't be um, making accusations against him. Uh, in the Agora, people won't be um, saying bad things about him in general, that the allegations against him are very specific, um, coming from this one particular uh, other aristocrat rather than from a big crowd. And so because of this, Isocrates' reasons, he must be innocent. And it is kind of, yeah, that the knowledge of the crowd argument. Uh, but at the same time, Isocrates says, my speech is very unique and it is not like the speeches you usually hear. And I'm trying to argue against prevailing trends that are corrupting Athens and I'm presenting this kind of alternative. And so he's both trying to say, look, the crowd knows what's best and saying, look, I I'm presenting a way of uh, making the crowd better. And yeah, it he's kind of using uh, those Socratic arguments about truth and to, to try to defend a position which is going very, man, very much against the Socratic position of truth first and instead is putting um, reputation and the knowledge of crowds first rather than abstract contemplation first. 
Yes, it's a very ancient version of what I call a double Martin Bailey argument. <laughs> so, um, so a Martin Bailey argument is an argument where when someone criticizes you and and argues that you are doing something wrong, you go, "No, no, you've under you've misunderstood me. I was actually making a much less controversial argument." And they go, oh, okay, I misunderstood. And then as soon as they leave, you go back to making the more provocative argument. Mm. Right? That's a Martin Bailey. Now, in a double Martin Bailey, you're being criticized from two different directions. <laughs> and depending on who you're talking to, you make a different Martin Bailey argument. <laughs> so if you're being attacked by a Democrat, you go, oh, no, I, I think that you know, rhetoric is the thing which, which reveals what the truth is. That's what I think. So, of course, I'm, I'm a Democrat. What I'm saying is entirely consistent with being a Democrat. Uh, you have no reason to hate me. And if you're attacked by a member of the academy, you go, uh, you know, who says, hey, you're, you're corrupting everybody by I inducing everybody to pay attention to the crowd rather than to pay attention to the truth, you know, what's mm. popular rather than what's good. You go, oh, no, what I'm doing is, is a different kind of, of rhetoric from what you usually hear. My kind of rhetoric is about getting the, the public to see the truth, which otherwise they don't usually see because other rhetoricians obscure it. Mm. So in this way, depending on who you're arguing with, you pretend that your position is basically the same as theirs while you're engaging them. Mm. And then as soon as you're not engaging them, you go back to a position which is more controversial. And someone who is using a double Martin Bailey, because they are changing their position constantly in multiple directions, depending on who they're talking to, there's no way to know what someone using a double Martin Bailey actually believes, unless and until they get into a position to actually wield power and take decisions. Mm. You can't really know. Uh, and that's the rhetorical genius of a double Martin Bailey argument. Now, that's precisely the kind of thing that makes Plato really, really suspicious. Mm really suspicious of this whole enterprise. Mm. That and, and those tuition fees. For Plato, if you're trying to help people get the truth, you are not charging them an arm and a leg for it. Mm. Plato's academy was famously semi-public. Anyone could theoretically go. Anyone could listen. Anyone could heckle the philosophers as they were discussing. I mean, if you, if you had the time, that's the thing about anyone. Anyone who has the time. But you didn't have to pay a fee. Yeah. 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 That, that also is ironic, given that Isocrates is saying that the thing about rhetoric that's great is that it's not something that is primarily about private needs. It's about the whole polis. And it's this politics first skill, which is going to satisfy everyone. Um, because it's um, because the best kind of rhetoric, he says, is the one that is at the political level, and it's that kind of rhetoric that can overcome um, rhetoric concerned with money and private interests. But yeah, at the same time, he's charging his students immense uh, sums for uh, for his time. <laughs> so he he's yeah undermining his own argument there. But there's also a sense in which you know, his use of double Martin Bailey kind of proves his point. It, it does feed into Socrates' critique of um, Isocrates, um, or I should say Plato's critique of Isocrates. Uh, but it also 
is Isocrates' point that the whole point about rhetoric is that it creates um, what he calls a, a culture of discourse. Um, and, uh, he, and he says, uh, they think that our common dialect and its moderation, our flexibility and our love of language contribute significantly to our culture of discourse. Um, hence, they are right to think that all who have skill at speaking are students of Athens. Uh, and so he's trying to argue that rhetoric is uh, not only something that is good at spreading truth of philosophers and also something that can appeal to the whole crowd, uh, but also contributes to the very essence of what the political collective is. And it's almost... Yeah, that it a, has an, yeah. an acculturating influence, that yeah. it, it makes the people who practice it more cultured or more civilized in some way. Yeah. Yeah, it socializes them in a good way. It has this civic socialization role, um, which isn't present, he argues, of uh, sophistic uh, arguments. It's only with political rhetoric that you can have this broad scale, uh, not just holistic appeal, not just appealing to the whole polity, but also socializing people so that they can continue to. Um, participate in the polity um, and yeah, let it live long. <laughs> of course, Plato also thinks that rhetoric plays a role in socialization, but he thinks it's very different yeah. insofar as Plato thinks that when you're engaged in rhetoric, you are inevitably going to have to appeal to the normativity that's already there, to the moral beliefs, to the desires that are already there in people that you're not going to be able to create new new beliefs, new moral goals, uh, new moral commitments. You're going to have to appeal to what's already there. And if you don't, you'll lose out to someone who does. Because in the mm -hmm. game of rhetoric, people who appeal to what's already there tend to beat out people who try to use their speeches to educate the public. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, for Plato... The speeches inevitably inflame the desires and pander to the desires of the mass. And for Plato, when you cater to desire, whether it's individually or collectively, that makes desire more powerful and tends to grow it over time. So the more a city engages in rhetoric, the more it inflates its desires. And that corrupts the city and makes it worse over time. Mm. such that it becomes more and more absorbed with desires. And of course, in the Republic and the cycle of regimes, Plato argues that this causes democracy to give way to despotism, in which you embrace this singular leader who, unlike, say, the virtuous philosopher king, is entirely given over to desire. And mm. therefore, in, in a despotic regime for Plato, no one rules. The despot does not rule the city in a despotic regime. What yeah. is happening is that desire is ruling everybody, including the despot, including yeah. the public, and therefore everyone in under despotism becomes a slave to desire, including the despot. Yeah. That's the opposite perspective here. Mm. And you can see that they're very, very stark differences. And so much of this comes back to this original difference over whether the good is something which is easily 
attainable by everybody and therefore everyone can participate in it, everyone can participate in generating it, or whether it's something that is reserved to a smaller section of people. Mm. And that's a very, very core difference. And it's, it's very hard to argue directly about that question. It's the kind of thing where we tend to have core instincts or core intuitions one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And very often, if you've had the experience of making an argument for a moral position or for making a decision on the basis of moral issues that other people don't find very compelling— If you've been in that situation where other people shrug at your moral argument and go, well, I don't really care about that. I care about my own needs. It can be tempting to, from that experience, drop Plato's conclusions. Uh, And Plato, I think, very often felt he was in that situation. that He was trying to appeal to values that most of the people around him didn't recognize or care about. Most of them were more interested in their own immediate concerns. Now, what might explain something like that? Uh, I tend to think it's class difference. If you have a lot of resources, then that frees you from having to worry about a lot of immediate things. And that gives you an opportunity to imagine other values that are more abstract, that are less to do with your day-to-day needs. And if you aren't in that situation materially, then you're going to have to pay more attention to what benefits you and what makes sure that you have enough money to pay rent or to pay for food. And that's going to change the way you relate to decision-making, and it's going to change the way you relate to morality. I've, I've often liked to say that morality is a luxury enjoyed by people who are freed from necessity. Hmm. And I think that that would to some degree, kind of explain the difference there. Um, But that brings some of my own thinking into it. These theorists, I don't think fully on their own uh, have, have this, well, Aristotle kind of does, because Aristotle says that to get the virtues, you need to have time, and that's provided for by having a level of resource. Yeah. And, of course, possessing slaves. So Aristotle is more straightforward about that. Hmm. Um, I I I think a lot of that comes back to, yeah, Plato to some degree. But Plato Plato has has a tendency to want to imagine societies in which you are able to get the benefits of philosophy without the detriments that Aristotle accepts and naturalizes. Plato is more attracted to more idealized visions of the city, which is why Plato is so dissatisfied with all of the extant constitutions that he sees. And when he does propose a city, it's a very different kind of city from what is around him. Whereas Aristotle begins by collecting constitutions from cities around him and comparing them to each other, Mm. beginning with the premise that what's around him might be reasonably well adapted to the conditions and to the situation and therefore ought to be taken into account. Mm. And some of that stems from the fundamental tendency uh, of Plato toward rationalism and Aristotle toward empiricism. Not that yes. they use those terms in, in ancient Greece, but uh, Plato's skepticism that the physical world, because Plato believes that the realm of forms, uh, the realm of pure abstractions, is higher and more real than the physical world. 
uh, a doubtfulness on Plato's part that the human institutions created by embodied people, souls trapped in bodies, souls distorted and corrupted by embodiment. Uh, Plato has a skepticism that the stuff created by those kinds of beings is the best or, or is even any good. Whereas Aristotle understands form to, to mean objects, real objects, and not pure abstractions. And therefore, for Aristotle, you know, what's in front of us is much more straightforwardly a guide to the way th things ought to be. That, I, I don't think you see the same level of epistemology in the works of someone like an Isocrates, but in appealing to the values which are already appealing to, or, to ordinary people, there is an element of uh, more empiricist bent there in that uh, if ordinary people find the value compelling, that suggests realness to the value for Isocrates. And I think to some degree, it would also for Aristotle, to some degree. Uh, mm. Aristotle does emphasize that you need to get a level of resource so that you can engage in contemplation. Aristotle thinks contemplation is very valuable. And in, in that respect, he differs because where mm. Isocrates is emphasizing rhetoric as the thing which helps you move toward truth, Aristotle is emphasizing contemplation. And so that still makes Aristotle a philosopher rather than a rhetorician. But mm. Aristotle's contemplators are still supposed to engage in political action because Aristotle has this switching back and forth between uh, ruling and being ruled, between acting and contemplating. Mm. Yeah. I didn't originally plan to bring Aristotle back in this episode, but uh, there's some utility in bringing this out to talk about the role that empiricism plays in political theory uh, and how it changes, naturalism changes what sounds plausible to you. The more of a naturalist you are, the more plausible it is that the values that are current in the society, the, the stuff that is all around us, uh, has some reason for being all around us. Mm. Plato, having come out quite sharply against the physical, is not going to be moved by that kind of argument at all. It won't persuade him even a little bit. Yeah. I, and it seems that the distinction between rationalism and empiricism uh, prima facie maps on to a distinction between people who are more okay with more authoritarian styles of government like Plato, because he thinks that it's not too hard for someone with sufficient contemplative powers to impose their um, rationalistic view on the world politically, whereas an empiricist, because they think that uh, we all have senses and we all have um, some primitive access to the world, that tends to lead to more democratic political attitudes, or at least that's how it seems. And the one caveat to that is that Isocrates, though he does have uh, this, as you say, this empiricist angle, he also thinks that rhetoric is a skill that needs a lot of training. That's why he thinks his students are right to be paying so much uh, in fees to him. Uh, he thinks that if people try to use rhetoric, but they don't have sufficient skill, they will either be unpersuasive 
or they will spread malicious ideas. And so he thinks training is important. Um, And so though empiricists do have this superficially egalitarian attitude to the world, still, even taking that empiricist view, it's still important to train yourself to recognise patterns in the world, recognise what works, recognise the kind of rhetoric that appeals to people. And so you still need training. And it still may be that you need uh, philosophers or the expert rhetoricians to rule. Um, But I guess, yeah, the difference is that whereas the ideal of the empiricist lawgiver, the empiricist politician, is someone who has a lot of training um, and simply training. (laughs) The ideal of a rationalist politician is someone who both has training and has uh, this eye towards the good. And that's something that Isocrates, yeah, because he's doing this double Martin Bailey, kind of wants to say. He wants to say that it's about truth. But it's something that, um, yeah, Plato can argue more plausibly because he's taking this rationalist standpoint, because the good is something that exists and can be pursued. It's more difficult for um, someone like Isocrates to say. And maybe for Aristotle, he kind of treads a middle ground. Um, He both says that rhetoric can be used poorly, but that it can also be used well. In um, his book on rhetoric, he argues that uh, rhetoric or or style, as he puts it, lexis, um, can be like any skill, something which you need to uh, tread a golden mean, moderation between excess and deficiency, between something that's too um, banal to um, demagogic to uh, you know, populist and something that's too niche that's too sophistic in Isocrates' you know, definition of sophistry um, uh, that's you know too narrow too specialist and in, in treading this ground between um, between um, what's true what's right what's justified and what people can understand, it's possible for rhetoric to be used in a virtuous way. And yeah, perhaps that's partly because Aristotle, though he is an empiricist, he still thinks contemplation matters and he still thinks you can pursue, if not the good, if not the form of the good, which he denies, you can still pursue the human good, what's good for humans, what's good for the polity. And in that way, perhaps by having a position which you know, incorporates both elements of empiricism and rationalism, Aristotle more quickly than Plato gets to a position which tries to tread a middle ground between saying rhetoric is great, rhetoric is perfect, and saying rhetoric is an evil which corrupts the polity. It's important for Aristotle to both have a pursuit of the good and have something that can satisfy everyone and that can appeal to everyone because he integrates both elements of empiricism and elements of um, somewhat more rationalist conceptions of the good. Yeah, uh, something I often say to students who are interested in taking political theory and trying to do something in active politics with it. Uh, when when you first start out, when you're pre-theoretical and you haven't studied political theory, it's like standing in a crowd. You can't see very much because you're in the crowd. You're part of the crowd. Mm. Um, as, as you start to, you know, if you get, 
into a helicopter or something that lifts you up off the ground, uh, as you start to move up a little bit, you can see what's going on. And you might be able to shout down to people with a bullhorn and get them to hear you. And you can tell them, hey, here's what is happening. Here's where you need to go to make sure that everybody's okay and everything goes the right way. Uh, And they might be able to hear you and they might be able to respond. And having somebody a little bit elevated above things uh, might be able to help you out. Mm. But there's a danger if, if the helicopter keeps going up and up and up as you try to see more and more and more of what's going on. The people down below start to blur together. You stop seeing them as people. Mm. And it starts to be the case that they can't hear you anymore through the bullhorn. Yeah, yeah. And so when you call back to them to try to get them to do something, they can't hear you. They don't respond to you. And, and you know, if, as you start to get high enough, you just look like a weird speck up to them. You don't yeah. look like a person to them either. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. look like something else. Yeah. And if you think about the allegory of the cave, when, when uh, Plato has, has Socrates come back into the cave, uh, that's very much like being too high up in the helicopter. Socrates tries to explain it. Uh, what he's seen to people in the cave and they don't want to go with him and they think he's crazy. Uh, They're not able to hear him in the way that he wants to be heard. Uh, The trouble for Plato, and this is one of the very tragic things about Plato's theory and about his life, is that for Plato, it really is the case that the truth is something that most people are not going to be able to understand, Mm. that you really will not be able to see the truth until you get high enough that you aren't able to shout down. Mm. And that's why he says, no, you, you won't be able to get there with rhetoric. Because Aristotle's conception of the truth is not quite as, as abstract and difficult to wrap your head around as Plato's, yeah. it's a little bit more plausible for Aristotle to think that you can shout something constructive back to people from a little bit of a contemplative perch, yeah, uh, and that that will be able to get you there. So much depends on whether the truth is visible from 20 feet up or, or 2,000 feet up. Mm. Right? Where does the truth actually become visible? At what point are we really able to see what's going on? Are the people who have the truth the people who are totally removed from ordinary life, or are they people who are just a little bit gently removed? And of course, then there's also a more radically democratic view that the truth is available to you when you're in the, in the crowd, that only when you're actually in the crowd with everybody do you have the truth? Mm. Uh, only when you're able to carry on multiple conversations with multiple different people in the crowd at once do you mm. have the truth, as opposed to you looking and seeing what's going on and then shouting things back to the people below. Mm. Uh, so there are very different conceptions of where the truth is. And depending on where you think it is, that's going to give you a very different notion of what is the use of talking, right? Mm. Uh, if you think that the truth is something that we can figure out by you know, talking to lots of different people you know, right where we are in our context, that's going to give you a more democratic conception of the truth. If you think that we need a little bit of contemplation, we need some expertise, but then after that we can return to politics and engage in democratic deliberation and get something out of it, you know, that gives you something a little bit more like Aristotle's position or the Isocrates position, which is meant to be more accommodating to the academy. Yeah. Uh, if you think that uh, there's, there's just no hope for that, uh, then that pushes you toward toward Plato's spot. And I don't think that there's an obvious way of adjudicating where it is. There are very different core intuitions that different theorists, different thinkers have about where truth is and therefore how easy it's going to be to get 
societies to, to do what you think is right. And there's also conversely going the opposite way. Earlier, you said, uh, Edmund, that for Plato, it's easy to implement a set of abstract ideals. I wouldn't say that it's easy because Plato recognizes that you're not going to be able to persuade very many people. Okay. Yeah. Of, of it. And that's why he says you have to get the philosopher king to rule because you aren't going to be able to instantiate these truths while you're continuing to engage with people in a democratic way. Mm. So it's politically very difficult. At the same Mm. time, Plato does think that that grand image, that grand vision he's able to have from the heights of philosophy, that that really is the truth. And that he is really seeing something that is is grasping elements of form, not not the fullness of form in a yeah. kind of dogmatic or schematic way, but he's genuinely able to get elements of form that other people aren't able to see. And for people with more grounded understandings of truth, it's it seems unlikely that someone who has uh, come up with a lot of ideas that are way out of alignment with everybody else has the truth. It's more likely that they've gone into some kind of sky palace, uh, become uh, too airy fairy, and become lost in their own uh, in their own ideas. Mm. And and that's again, it's a kind of core intuition thing that is a matter of what your theoretical point of view is. It's very hard for me to sit here and say, well, here's why this one group or this other group has the right conception of truth. It's, it's something that is going to have a lot to do with you, the listener, and the way you think about truth, if you think that there is truth, uh, and how, how you come to your beliefs about what's good or, or, or what's bad. Um, and I also, as I was listening to what you were saying, Edmund, was thinking about the, the fundamental tensions within democratic empiricism. And this, these are tensions I think we are still stuck with today. Yeah. And it's that on the one hand, democracy says the values that are appealing to everybody are probably the real values that we ought to care about, not the values that are only evident to a small group of people who have studied. So value is made egalitarian. Everyone is supposed to be able to equally participate in deciding what our values are. Mm. At the same time, there is still a conviction, and especially as democracies become associated with technocratic expert institutions, to say that there needs to be some kind of education or training or expertise for people to properly do empiricism, for people to properly figure out what's going on, and also for them to properly communicate what they have discovered. Right. So there's some kind of scientific method Aristotle tries to develop. There's some kind of rhetorical method that Isocrates and also to some extent Aristotle try to develop. And you need some kind of proper training to do those things. So if you're saying in a kind of naturalist kind of way that value comes from observation and you're saying that you need special skill to observe properly, then that diminishes the egalitarian element to the initial naturalist move to say that the values that we find in people are the real values. Yes. Right? If value comes out of observing nature and you need special skill to observe nature, then you also need special skill to determine value. And that's why the technocratic democratic marriage between an expert empiricist method and a hoi polloi democratic uh, value choice method those things are in an antagonistic relationship, even though they try uh, both both uh, try to obscure that through Mott and Bailey arguments. Uh, th- there is a more antagonistic relationship between democracy and empiricism than naturalists often uh, initially 
indicate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a big part of the contemporary frustration a lot of people are having uh, in, insofar as people who are committed to democracy are finding those technocrat experts uh, to not respect the values that emerge from the crowd. Mm. And on, on the other side, the uh, technocrat experts are, are frustrated at the lack of education of the mass. Uh, but in saying that, the, that we are able to find values simply by looking at what people believe and simply by looking at the way society is structured and, and reasoning from nature, uh, naturalists to some degree uh, subject themselves to that possible critique from, from Democrats. Um, mm. it, it's, it's interesting how the, the double Martin Bailey that Isocrates gave us is still causing a lot of trouble for democracy yeah. and, for, and for scientific empiricism today, insofar as it opened each to critiques from the other, while nonetheless connecting the two to each other and tying them together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that there's I guess one example of that tension between um, on the one hand the impulse of democracy to give everyone a voice and on the other hand uh, the lessons of empiricism that you still need training, you still need um habit empiricist David Hume calls the great guides to human life um, in order to uh, apprehend the world in a better way, to make better predictions. Uh, and s such that uh, J.S. Mill says that uh, though it's important that everyone um, pursues pleasure, he thinks that there's a distinction between higher pleasures and lower pleasures Pleasures like philosophy and pleasures like um, pushpin, a, a ball game, uh, uh, yeah, a, a, a game with um, uh, which little children play. And Jeremy Bentham, an early utilitarian, famously said, "Pushpin is as good as poetry." Um, and J.S. Mill says that pushpin is not as good as poetry because poetry is a higher pleasure, and how can you tell it's a higher pleasure? Because people who've experienced more, who've experienced all of the pleasures, who've tried both um, this silly little children's game, Pushpin, and have also tried poetry, they will know from experience what feels better, they will know what poetry is better, and they will tell that Shakespeare is better than the pop culture of the day because they've experienced all these different things. And so there is this... Um, epistocratic impulse to empiricism, this Im impulse to, um, just as the rationalist wants to train the very best philosophers to rule, the empiricist wants to give everyone sufficient training to be good at rhetoric for Isocrates, or you know, good at participating and voting well, if you're J.S. Mill, a couple thousand years later. But the difficulty is that, yeah, these two run in tension with each other. And if you get the order wrong, if you give everyone, everyone a voice, but then you can't teach everyone, you can't give everyone the experience, you, you get a real crisis emerging with uh, you know, a, a population that is fully enfranchised, but hasn't been given what the empiricists want to give everyone, this, um, you know, 
intensive, practical, habit-based um, education. And you know, the problem that uh, David Runciman in his book, How Democracy Ends, identifies with supporters of epistocracy ruled by those with knowledge, particularly empirical knowledge, is that he says, Mill was right. Democracy comes after epistocracy, not before. You can't run the experiment in reverse. Uh, so you can't establish democracy and then try to create an epistocracy. If you haven't already created an epistocracy, if you haven't already created an empiricist utopia of really good and rigorous education in the natural sciences and in practical affairs and in rhetoric, then, and you've already established a democracy, too bad. You can't suddenly place restrictions on who can vote based on how much practical experience people have. And so, yeah, I think that there is this real tension within democratic empiricism between the impulse to give everyone a voice and the knowledge that to know what's natural, to know what works, what's effective, um, you, know, you need to have this epistocratic constraint, but that's a constraint that isn't fully compatible with democracy and is something, yeah, produces this double bottom Bailey argument saying that democracy is this crowd-pleasing thing and it's also this truth-seeking thing and it's difficult to have both at the same time. Mm. And as we've moved into you know, more contemporary times, there's been a lot of doubt cast on the existence of truth. And as doubt has been cast under postmodernism on the existence of truth, it becomes much harder to make the argument that you need a lot of expertise to be able to tell people what, you know, what is valuable and what's not valuable. Mm. And so one of the things we've had recently is a kind of real sharp splintering in the way that people come up with what they morally value and the way people come up with what they believe to be descriptively true. But because naturalism always tried to connect those things together, because it always tried to cross that is-ought barrier and derive what ought to be from what is, uh, there's a frustration on the part of the people who stick to an empiricist scientific method that um, many people in the moral space no longer see the scientific method as uh, a means of telling you what ought to be. Hmm. And you know, under, under postmodernism, there's kind of a loss of any particular methodological commitment to any particular way of deciding what ought to be. So you lose both the, the rationalist method and the empiricist method as an adjudicator of value. And in this kind of open space, it's, there's even more tension today between empiricists and Democrats than there was previously. Because the Democrats, in, in largely having become postmodern, are much less interested in naturalist arguments about what they ought to believe because of nature. Yeah. And, of course, also not interested in rationalist arguments about uh, abstract values yeah. that come from uh, religious or, or, uh, philoso or secular philosophical tradition. Mm. And so we have a kind of, uh, and one of the things that's interesting is, of course, a lot of the people who are committed to the idea that you can derive morality from science uh, are very frustrated at the unwillingness of people to accept the values that they have derived from their own observations of science. And one of the 
the questions that must be put to people who think that you can do that is, why is it if um, our values come out of nature and come out of science that so many people don't have the values that those scientists think that they ought to have? Uh, and if it's because they don't have the appropriate kind of training or education in science, then that is going to really not sync up with the postmodernism which has taken hold in the study of value. Um, mm. I think a lot of this comes back to the, the, the central problem with crossing the is-ought barrier, with naturalism, with trying mm. to derive oughts from is's. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it's always a bit of a fraught project to try to say that what we ought to value is based on what we do value or based on what exists. There's always something that doesn't feel quite right to me about that. But that's a, a, a theoretical intuition that not everybody's going to have. And when people don't have it, it's very hard to make an argument to them that they would find convincing. I, I guess often the reason today why people endorse naturalist theories of morality is because there doesn't seem to be any alternative. It seems to be a choice between and the death of value on the one hand and accepting that morality comes out of science, comes out of evolution, uh, or comes out of all these is's, comes out of nature in some way. Um, unless morality is grounded in something concrete, people fear that there is no morality. But the irony is that the nihilism in a way comes out of the naturalism. It's by saying, oh, look, the morality is grounded in some facts of biological nature or some such argument that you know, with a change in social conditions, with a change in science, with a change in conception of what is, which always happens because the world is a world of change as you know, the ancients, as the pre-Socratics and you know, Plato alike never ceased to uh, emphasise that the physical world is always changing what is today is not the same tomorrow. And so every is claim um, about the physical world, about nature, is you know, almost bound to be invalidated tomorrow. Even the laws of physics can be called into question by new experiments, by you know, quantum physics, calling into question Newtonian mechanics. Because and certainly the world, yeah. in the case of social tradition, like, say, slavery, uh, that's something that observed historically looked like an institution that would never go away mm. or never change very much. And which, while I wouldn't argue it's gone away, it has changed significantly over time in the form that it takes and the language that's used uh, to describe it. Uh, many, many institutions have changed form and changed shape in ways that would make it difficult for empiricist theories to uh, account uh, in, in normative oughts for, for why. And I think that th this is uh, one of the big problems that we have, that naturalism and empiricism are not capable of supporting morality. Yeah. And yet at this point in time, epistemologically, many people increasingly believe that only naturalism and empiricism give us a legitimate uh, truth claims. Yeah. And in this way, naturalism and empiricism lead to nihilism because they aren't capable of supporting morality, but they claim that they support all truth and that anything which can't be supported by them can't be true. I mean, one question is how on earth can the um, uh, naturalists and empiricists 
try to distinguish between arbitrary and non-arbitrary moral claims. Because if something is grounded in what is, and if, say, uh, morals about what's right politically, about the just political form, are purely grounded in facts of existing political institutions, you know, uh, you know, the question arises, well, who's to say that existing political institutions are right? Who's to say that this arbitrary aspect of nature is a good one? And I guess naturalism always um, decays into a question of, okay, the way we can have a non-arbitrary moral theory is by taking all of nature into account. But then the question is, well, even if everything is taken into account and everything that's happened is taken into account, who's to say that, firstly, that all of it taken together is good and that all of the aspects of nature together are good? But the second question is, well, if so, which aspects and how do you tell which aspects? That there seems to be no criteria by which you can judge um, which aspects of nature are good from a naturalist perspective. It oscillates between particularism, between saying this particular thing, this particular biological or sociological fact is good, and saying, oh, all of these facts taken together are good. And of course, this gross naturalist generalism can't hold because there's contradictions between different things in nature. Uh, different things seem to suggest different morals. In, in one place, one morality is followed, in another, another morality is followed. And who's to say which is right? Uh, and so that can't hold. And on the one, other hand, the particularism can't hold because that seems to just be taking particular aspects of nature and generalising about the whole. And so naturalism in this way has no common ground to decide about whether nature is good and also about whether particular aspects of nature is good. Because both claims, the claim that nature as a whole is good and the claim that particular aspects of nature are good, are fundamentally arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, if, if, the, if we observed major changes in in the natural world all of the time, it would make it very difficult if those changes defied existing scientific laws. We know it to trust science in descriptive matters. Mm. Um, when it comes to normative questions, what people have believed about what's right and wrong have changed a lot over time, so much so that it's very hard to argue that there is any kind of natural basis for one fixed set of values or moral claims or moral beliefs. Mm. So if we want to try to argue that there are some moral claims that are good in some larger sense, uh, we seem to need some alternative way of making that argument. Mm. The difficulty, of course, is that the alternative ways of making that argument tend to come out of rationalist philosophy and theology. Mm. Uh, these things are not very accessible to ordinary people. Mm. They require an awful lot of education to really participate in. Mm. And then that pushes you back away from the democratic position. And in part because we have a democratic society, that forces us to commit to naturalism because theology and, and rationalism are so counter-democratic by design. Mm. Uh, and 
Um, that means that democracy itself generates a level of nihilism over time by making us dependent on this naturalism, which cannot fully ground value. In a way, that's kind of what rhetoric is about today. It's about telling people that there are values beyond simply facts about what is. And part of rhetoric, what rhetoric is about, is about dressing reality in a pleasant veneer. It's about um, performing a role. It's about uh, using figures of speech, using metaphor, using things which um, dress up reality um, in a pleasant way, um, paint a pleasant facade over existing nature. Uh, And in doing so, rhetoric can kind of fulfil a role of making us think that morality still is something that really matters. And you know, perhaps that's one of the functions of rhetoric today, to try to convey to people um, emotionally uh, that something does still matter, to try to convey um, whether it's a real moral truth or not. Rhetoric is, in a sense, moralistic. It is about conveying in people a sense of what ought to be. Um, about getting people uh, emotionally or cognitively, even if it's mostly mostly emotionally with rhetoric, to try to pursue something beyond themselves. And in that way, perhaps Isocrates today would look at the scene and say, what we need now is rhetoric to try to give people um, a sense of morality in a society where that sense is fading. That's what Isocrates might say. <laughs> that's a that's a great point, Edmund. That's very that's very interesting. And of course, that gets back to what we talked about, what I talked about at the very beginning of the episode about how you could read Isocrates in a more postmodern way. You could read Isocrates as saying not that rhetoric is based on the wisdom of crowds, but that truth uh, is generated by the intersubjective exchanges mm. by people through rhetorical practice and that that is is what the alternative is to going back to theology or back to rationalist philosophy. It's having an intersubjective constructed truth Mm. through rhetoric Uh, and that that's what what is ultimately ramming into uh, the empiricism and the naturalism and the scientific accounts of what we ought to do. Those those scientists and rationalists and empiricists are not always able to persuade people that their values are the most compelling. Mm. Uh, they're not always able to win those rhetorical games. Um, but I think, I think to, to bring it back to Plato for a second, that if, if that's where, where the alternative for value is, if the alternative to uh, empiricist and naturalist and scientific value is an intersubjective uh, rhetorical deliberation, that would leave Plato very bereft. Mm. Because that deliberation, since it's governed by what's rhetorically persuasive, is not going to have the kind of philosophical consistency to it, which a theologian or a rationalist philosopher would want moral truth to Mm. have. And it means that because 
whoever's winning the rhetorical debate can change at the next election or the next news cycle, that there's going to be not just fluctuations within particular accounts of the truth, but large fluctuations in what we are collectively taking to be the truth. And a lot of the recent discussion about fake news and about um, you know the, the, the feeling lately that in the public sphere, truth has kind of collapsed as an arbitrating force. Uh, this is something that I think a lot of empiricists who for much of, of the last hundred years were, were accustomed to being able to judge the political sphere in a way that the public would find would respond to. A lot of scientists, economists, researchers were taken as experts who could adjudicate whether a politician had lied or whether a politician had misled people because there was still some implicit commitment in the last 100 years to naturalism and empiricism being the things which were the bases for truth. And so all values had to take those natural facts into account and give an account of themselves which was consistent with those natural facts. And now the rhetorical deliberation has has increasingly been drifting away even from that to the point where the values and ideas that you are trying to persuade people of and communicate through the rhetorical deliberation are more important and more essential to you and often to, to the speaker's identity or essence, uh, you know, felt essence, you know, what they take to be their essence, uh, than any particular fact claims about what is. And so as a result of this, it has become increasingly normal to read descriptive reality in light of the normative claims. Hmm. But because those normative claims are not based on any kind of internally coherent philosophy, increasingly, uh, because they're not tied necessarily to theology or, or, or philosophy, they can be extremely bizarre and messy and poorly constructed. And so these narratives about truth now in our society are especially poorly, poorly organized from the point of view of philosophy. Um, is that a problem? Well, I guess it depends on those fundamental core intuitions that you have that we talked about. If, if throughout all of history, the philosophers and the scientists and so on have been constraining ordinary people and preventing them from constructing value on the basis of wherever they're at, uh, then it's not a problem that this is actually a kind of liberating thing. Uh, but if you think that to, to form fully compelling, uh, attractive value sets, we do need some kind of education or training or you know, at least internal consistency, uh, then yeah, there is a kind of erosion going on there. Mm. Uh, isn't it interesting how we can get all the way to that, starting with I, mm. Socrates, and Thucydides and their discussion of rhetoric? I wanted to say before we wrap up a little bit more about Thucydides, because we introduced him at the beginning and then we kind of abandoned mm. him. Uh, for Thucydides, the solution to all of this was this kind of Pericles figure, the person who is so good that they overcome the ordinary constraints, which most people are under. Uh, and to some degree, Plato's philosopher king is a similar kind of person uh, in that Plato's philosopher king overcomes the uh, ordinary constraints of, the, of Plato's cycle of regimes and is able to institute some kind of ideal society. But of course, in Plato's case, the 
philosopher king has some kind of relationship to the good or to truth. Whereas in Thucydides' case, Pericles is just a great talker, just a fabulous, fabulous mm-hmm. talker. And the, uh, the this is kind of, uh, in, in this period, it is current for people to talk about these kind of orderers of cities, these lawgivers, these people that uh, you know, give the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit before on the Rousseau episode. Yeah. Uh, we talked about it a little bit before. Uh, yeah, in in reference to to these different kind of Lycurgus type figures, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we also on the Weber episode, the charismatic individual who shows up and is able to, through sheer force of charisma, uh, create a new way of thinking about things or a new way of being. You know, Heidegger often talked about trying to find a new way of being in world that would give us a, a new way of, of interpreting and seeing what's around us that would make sense of it in a way that's more compelling than the ways which are available to us under you know, liberal capitalism and the reactions to liberal capitalism. Uh, and even in ancient times, there seems to have been both from people who were into philosophy and people who are into rhetoric, some kind of desire for some something new mm. and some person with exceptional ability who would symbolize that something new. Uh, and rhetoric has always been a place where you can find that kind of person. The thing is, whether you view a particular person as the charismatic lawgiver figure who's going to remake the world in, in a better and more compelling way, or just some demagogue who is feeding off of the public and gradually ruining everything. You know, Plato likes philosopher kings, but thought that Pericles was feeding off the public and gradually ruining everything. Yeah. Uh, it makes so much of a difference where you sit in these core discussions about what is knowledge, what is truth, where do we find it, how accessible is it to ordinary people, uh, all of that makes a big difference in whether you're going to view a particular figure as the charismatic lawgiver or just another blood-sucking parasite. Mm. Uh, and you know, because of this, uh, if we're going to have some level, healthy level of skepticism about our own beliefs, we, we have to be cautious in identifying any particular individual or, or movement as the thing that has the solution to all of this. Mm. And I think it's it's telling about the level of despair that a lot of theorists have about their own conditions and their own times that these figures are so often posited as necessary and needed, where theorists can't see a way in which the structures they've observed around them would of their own accord generate positive change, that they have to posit these extraneous figures. Yeah. And there's always the risk that even once you have a charismatic lawgiver, um, some kind of Pericles to come in and save the day, that once they're gone, uh, things start to go awry. And Thucydides says in his discussion in the history of of the Peloponnesian War, on his view on Pericles, he says, Athens was in name a democracy, but in fact was a government by its first man, Pericles. But because those who came after were more equal among themselves with everyone aiming to be the chief, they gave up taking care of the commonwealth in order to please the people. So Pericles is gone, (laughs) the lawgiver's gone, and it's gone awry. But of course, ideally, if you've got an effective lawgiver, surely they'll do what 
Rousseau advocates the legislator to do. They'll socialize everyone um, to align with the general will for Rousseau or the good for Plato. And in this way, we'll be able to ensure that everyone is respecting virtue well into the future and long after they're gone. And perhaps this leads to something that Plato hinted at, that political problems could only be really resolved and politics made to to align with morality when uh, philosophers become kings or kings become philosophers. Uh, Perhaps coming out of this discussion, uh, maybe we could say that it's when philosophers become rhetoricians or rhetoricians become philosophers that you find the right uh, political character to help lead societies from a worse place to a better place. And the question is whether that can be done, because if you propose that to Plato, Plato will say that the act of trying to communicate it to the mass uh, vulgarizes Mm. it. Uh, if you if you have to win them over, uh, you do have to go back into the cave. You do have to help the mass for Plato. But the act of trying to communicate it to the mass, uh, and especially as a practice in the way that the rhetorician makes it an attempted craft or practice, uh, that that will gradually corrode the understanding of the truth which the philosopher has. Mm. And of course, conversely, to go the other way, uh, you know, to try to be a philosopher is to try to have beliefs that are in some way better organized than those of the people around you. Uh, and, and it's an attempt to have beliefs that are grounded on something that you view as more concrete than what grounds the beliefs of the people around you. So there is, there is, I, I do think that there is a little bit of an antagonism oh, sure. between the yes, two. Yeah. But if it's possible to do them both together, that would be a way out. Yeah. If it's possible. Yeah. The question is whether it's possible and then, you know, in, in looking at Thucydides, Thucydides, despite how much he admires Pericles, he does admit what Plato says, that after Pericles, the city got worse. Yes. And there's always a risk that this individual figure will be able to create a system that they can run, that works reasonably well when they're there to run it. But once they go away, those institutions don't have the kind of durability that would be necessary. Mm. And that's why when you talk about lawgivers, the emphasis for Rousseau was on someone who could set up a system of laws or institutions and then go away. Mm. And then they wouldn't be needed for those things to work. Because Pericles was needed for the city to work, Mm. he's not the lawgiver. Mm. And so there's a difference between the charismatic leader and the lawgiver because the lawgiver sets up institutions and goes away, whereas the charismatic leader stays. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, and if, and yeah, for Rousseau, yeah. once you have to stay, unless those institutions are set up in a way which reproduces the charismatic lawgiver, you're in trouble. As a, as a final aside, as we're wrapping up, the Roman principate, the Roman Empire, did posit that that's kind of what it was, that it was a system which reproduced charismatic leadership over and over and over yes. again. That was part of its legitimation narrative. Mm. Uh, but that's, a, that's another story. One other thing is that in the Phaedrus, Plato does indicate that uh, though there is some kind of tension between rhetoric and philosophy, that Perhaps to do rhetoric most effectively, 
it might be helpful to have philosophy. He goes as far as to say uh, that uh, he asks Phaedrus, where is deception most likely? Well, Socrates asks this. Where is deception most likely to occur um, regarding things that differ much or things that differ little from one another? And Phaedrus says regarding things that differ little. And uh, Socrates says, if you are to deceive someone else and to avoid deception yourself, you must know precisely the respects in which things are similar and dissimilar to one another. And Socrates goes on to conclude that uh, the art of a speaker who doesn't know the truth and chases opinions instead is likely to be a ridiculous thing, not an art at all. So even to deceive people, to dress up um, what's false as what's true, even that (laughs) requires, if it's to be really effective, some kind of knowledge of the particular objects which you're dressing up. Um, It requires some kind of knowledge of truth to be able to dress up what's not true as true. And so more generally, for rhetoric as a whole, it it may be that though there doesn't seem in general to be a great superiority that philosophers have um, in being rhetorically effective over non-philosophers, to be really, really, really good at rhetoric, it may be helpful to have philosophy. And that may be uh, some kind of um, you know, helping hand um, if we're looking for the kind of political character who combines philosophy and rhetoric, because it may be that even though ideally, if you're going to do philosophy absolutely correctly, rhetoric doesn't exactly um, help too much. If you're going to do rhetoric really effectively, then philosophy and virtue may actually help make rhetoric effective and sustainable. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I very often you see that people who study critical theory are often the most effective at using what they've learned to legitimate political orders, states, uh, economic systems. I'm reminded of Pete Buttigieg, whose father, of course, was a, a great scholar of Gramsci. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, some exposure to it can be a dangerous thing. Uh, mm, yes. It, yeah, if if the philosophy becomes a means of facilitating the rhetoric rather than the reverse, mm. uh, a little bit of philosophy can be a dangerous thing. I've I I often like to say that a little education is not at all good. Mm. If you're going to get educated, you need a lot. Or not much, yes. or, or not anything yes. at all. Uh, a little bit is very dangerous. Enough to, to use it to support the wrong things, mm. but not enough to discern the right things from the wrong things. Uh, very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. But yes, it's, it's worth pointing out kind of before we wrap up that uh, Plato's position in the Phaedrus does look a little bit different from his position in the Gorgias. And it's possible that in the Phaedrus, you get a version of Plato that's a little bit more amenable to rhetoric than the more hardline version that's in the Gorgias. And of course, because we have other people in that intermediary space in the episode, I I tended to position Plato in his Gorgias mode. Mm. Uh, 
rather than in the Phaedrus mode, uh, because that gives you uh, another position that you can play with. Mm. But uh, it is possible to, using the Phaedrus, try to construct a Plato that's a bit more friendly to rhetoric. But I would caution you that I do think that you can read that bit in which he says that philosophy helps the rhetorician. If you combine that with the argument in the Gorgias and try to read the Phaedrus and Gorgias together, that would imply that the rhetorician who has a little bit of philosophy is a deadly, deadly thing. Yes, yes. Mm. All right. So I, I, this, this, I think, went, went pretty well and got pretty fun, mm. uh, especially in its back half. So let's go ahead and wrap up. Um, we, uh, of course, are now running a Patreon. Uh, and the reason for this is that previously, guys, I used my, uh, I, I used to be on another podcast called What's Left, and the same sound producer who makes What's Left also makes this podcast. And uh, because I was on What's Left, I could get uh, the sound producer to also create these episodes. But now that I'm no longer on What's Left, uh, it's it would not be right for me to try to you know, continue to make these episodes without offering my sound producer some other uh, source of income. So we do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash political theory 101, no space, no underscores or anything like that. Uh, and if you could help us to pay the sound producer, that will make it possible for us to sustain this as a project going forward. Uh, I'm, we're not trying to make a ton of money off of this. It's, it's not a, you know, ambitious kind of thing. I just want to make enough that our sound producer who struggles under a lot of student debt uh, is happy to continue making them and feels that he is uh, getting a, a good, fair, reciprocal arrangement with us. Uh, so if if you go over to there, there are a few different, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping that if we can get to about a thousand uh, per month, that will be enough to sustain the sound producer, and then we're we're hoping that we can commit at that point to at least twelve episodes per year, plus a couple Q and A episodes where those who support the show can have more specific questions answered. And of course, you can also, if you get on that Patreon, message us and uh, communicate with us a little bit. Um, of course, yeah, those who don't have the money, uh, don't worry. We'll we'll do our best to make these for as long as we can, for as long as we have the resources to appropriately compensate our sound producer. Mm. Uh, so with that out of the way, uh, I'm not going to do that whole spiel every episode, but at the end, I will probably say something along the lines of, if you want to support the project, patreon.com slash political theory 101. Uh, so thank you guys for listening. We're looking forward to doing more of these things. Uh, it's always a joy to talk to Edmund. Uh, oh, it's, it's always so, a joy talking to you, Benjamin. Uh, Thank you. So with all of that out of the way, have a very, very pleasant rest of your day. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.